0: Welcome to the Best Interest Podcast, where we believe Benjamin Franklin's advice that an investment in knowledge pays the best interest, both in finances and in your life. Every episode teaches you personal finance and investing in simple terms. Now, here's your host, Jesse Kramer.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 55 of the Best Interest Podcast. My name is Jesse Kramer. Most of you listening fall somewhere maybe in your 20s, 30s, early 40s. That's the, the average age of listeners of the Best Interest podcast. And that age demographic has a few interesting side effects when it comes to the, the things I talk about here on the podcast. Now, obviously, I skew most of my content in such a way that it benefits you based on your age and kind of the stage of life that you're in right now. Just for context, I'm 33 years old. So the conversations that I'm having with my peers in real life are fairly similar with the conversations I'm having here on the podcast. But today, we're going to do something a little bit different. It's still, I'm thinking about your age. But today, I want to think about, really, the age of your parents. Now, the conversations, the financial conversations that we ought to be having with our parents or that we are having or that we should be having with our parents, they depend on our parents' age. Now, if you're listening to this and you're 20, maybe your parents are only 45 or 50 or 55. That's different than someone who's listening to this episode and is 40 or 45. Their parents might be 70 or 75 or 80. You know, the conversation with a 50-year-old parent is much different than the conversation with a 75 or 80-year-old parent. We'll get into that. But an overwhelming majority of adult children, according to one study by Go Banking Rates, it's about 73%, 73% of adult children have not had a detailed conversation with their parents about their parents' finances. Now, why? Why haven't people had those conversations? Well, one of the primary reasons why these survey respondents said they haven't had that talk is because, well, they don't quite know how to have that discussion. So, what we're going to talk about today, we're going to talk about some ideas, some ways that you can start some of these discussions with your parents. Of course, we're also going to talk about the important topics that you need to bring up in these financial conversations with your parents. You know, what, what is the, the meat and potatoes? What are the nitty-gritty items that you should be talking about with your parents? And I hope you walk away with not only more knowledge, but also more confidence and maybe even a little action plan. To approach your parents, start bringing up some of these conversations, and not only improve their financial position, but in the long run, improve yours as well. Let's talk about some of the ways that we can broach these conversations with our parents. How do we get that foot in the door? How do we start that first conversation or how do we ease our parents into the conversation? How do we ease ourselves into the conversation, right? It's not always a comfortable conversation. One of the best places to start is actually talking with your siblings. Your siblings are your peers. They're in a similar situation as you are. They are a child of your parents. They might be a beneficiary of your parents financially, or they might have to care for your parents eventually in some sort of medical way. So your siblings have a lot in common with you. But. You might be thinking that talking with your parents about their finances is, is hard enough as is. It might add another layer of complication to bring your siblings into the conversation. That's true. But if you don't bring your siblings into the conversation or if your siblings feel left out, that might cause some resentment, you know, some emotional resentment. It's not math and numbers based, but it's just the way that human brains work. So first, I think you and your siblings need to get on the same page. One of the ways you can do that is simply by figuring out who will initiate this future money talk with your parents. Maybe it's just you. Maybe it's just one of your siblings. Maybe it's all of you all at once. You also can discuss what roles you're going to play in your parents' lives as they age. Some of that might be based on geography, you know, how close you live to your parents. Some of it might be based on, you know, the age of the siblings in the family. You know, does the oldest sibling have to take more responsibility? That's up to you. But eventually when you do talk to your parents, you can let them know how each of you siblings wants to help out or how you feel about their financial situation, how you feel about the way that you're written into their will, those kind of things. That might make it easier for your parents to talk to you because at least they know that you as siblings are, well, hopefully you're willing to work together in some way, shape or form. But at the very least, you're coming to your parents with full information about the different roles and different responsibilities that you and your siblings are are willing to take. Okay, once you've talked to your siblings and kind of established some of the ground rules, for lack of a better term, you've got to find a right time to talk to your parents. Now, conversations with your parents about their finances, they can happen naturally, but sometimes it's not natural. And even if it's a not natural situation and you're able to broach the topic casually you should realize that you're going to need to set aside time for a a truly in-depth conversation or maybe even a, a series of conversations, a series of discussions with your parents to gather details about their finances. Like I said, this isn't really a casual thing. So, you know, despite the fact that you and your siblings, your parents are probably all together during, say, holidays, you probably shouldn't have one of these conversations during a holiday gathering, even if it is that one time of year that you guys are all together. You know, there could be well, there there are many reasons why, you know, one, you're kind of there to celebrate a holiday and celebrate being together. You're not necessarily there to go through the family business. Sure, there might be other people at the holiday event itself who don't really need to be part of that conversation, you know, aunts uncles cousins, whatever. that's that's a small thing. and And granted, there there are all these extracurricular activities uh, that might occur at a holiday feast that don't need to be involved in the the sobering conversation of estate planning. But either way, you need to find a time where, as a family, you can get together, preferably one that's not during the holidays or during that kind of designated family time. It needs to be a, an event unto itself. It could take many different attempts, several attempts, before your parents understand why you want to sit down with them, why you want to discuss their finances with them. And it could take several attempts before your parents are willing to, to open up to you. Now, one possible idea is to at least broach the topic at some family event, to set up a future conversation. You know, maybe it's the day after Christmas or it's the end of the Thanksgiving meal, and one of the siblings just says, you know, hey, Mom, hey, Dad, we've kind of been talking amongst ourselves, and when the time is right, you know, outside of the holidays, maybe we can find a day to get together and start to talk through some of these important topics. They're important topics to us, your children. They're probably important topics to you as parents, and we just want to know where your heads are at. So let's not talk now. But maybe we can talk in the future. It's not a bad idea to bring that up in person. At least I'm a big fan of these in-person conversations. If you haven't already picked up on it kind of through your, say, your career or, or your work, it's hard to get the right emotion across via writing. Or it's hard to get the right emotion across sometimes over the phone or even over Zoom. The best way to have hard conversations, preferably, is in person if you can. And so it's not a bad idea to bring up this topic, which can be a hard topic, in person with your parents. Just don't get into the nitty-gritty details of it all during a, a celebratory time. All right, this next part is kind of interesting, and it gives you some ideas about having that plan for starting the conversation. Before you begin talking to your parents about their finances, about their long-term health, those kind of things, you might need to think about what approach you should take to get them to open up. Now, some of us, some people out there have, have great relationships with their parents. Uh, maybe money is not really that taboo of a topic in their family. And it's pretty easy just to bring up this idea of like, hey, us kids, we kind of want to gather some information about your finances just in case there's emergency, just to give you, our parents, some peace of mind. But yeah, we, we just want to have one of those kind of conversations. If you can bring it up that way, great. But for some people, they need a more indirect approach to get their parents comfortable with the idea of discussing a topic that they might consider off-limit. So a few different ideas that I found from scouring around the internet. The first idea, using a story. You can use a story about someone you know who had to get involved with a parent's finances that, unfortunately, highlights the, the benefits of being prepared or the problems that that family encountered because they, they weren't prepared. Fear can be a powerful motivator, and, and sometimes it helps to say, hey, Mom and Dad, my buddy Jim, his father just had a stroke, and Jim didn't have any idea what was going on in his father's finances. And now not only is Jim trying to help his dad medically, but he's trying to put all these puzzle pieces together financially, and it's really stressful. And we're hoping to avoid a situation like Jim's in our lives. So you can use a story like that to just kind of bring up the idea of what to your parents of why your mind is in this place in the first place and why you're hoping to have this conversation in the first place. Another idea, you can ask your parents for advice. Ask them for financial advice with some sort of issue you're facing. Their response will give you some clues about the financial planning in their life, what they've done. It also might give you some clues about what they haven't done. And then you can keep that conversation going by asking more questions, digging into details. And and legitimately, you might be trying to get actual ideas from them, but you're also going to notice some places where they might have holes. And if you dig into those places and say, hey, I I noticed you haven't really talked about your will at all. Like, do, do you have a will? They might say, oh, no, we don't have a will. And here's why. Oh, okay. there's a good spot for you to kind of launch off of and bring up this conversation. A final idea, a final way to broach these conversations with your parents is to ask them some what if questions. You know, hey mom, hey dad, if you guys ended up in the hospital for some reason, I'm just wondering, you know, how would your bills get paid? Would would you need me to step in? Hey guys, I'm I'm just wondering, you know, what if this happened, would you need me to help? What would happen to us? What would happen to our family? Those kind of what if questions highlight needs for planning, for financial planning. And might prompt your parents to share information that would help them in case of emergency and would help you plan for them in case of that emergency. Now, hopefully your parents view you as a intelligent and independent, you know, powerful adult. They, they see you as a person unto yourself and they respect you for bringing up these ideas. But there is a chance and some parents out there still kind of see their children as as children, not really as adults. And, and they might be reluctant to share information with someone. Well, it could, it could be for any reason, but one of the biggest is that they still see you as essentially a child and they don't really want to take advice from their child. Maybe they don't want to burden you with these responsibilities because you are still a child in their mind. And for that reason, some parents are going to be more receptive if they hear these requests from a third party as opposed to from you directly. Now, ultimately. You're the one who you probably want to be involved in the conversation, especially if you are going to be taking care of them, if you're going to be helping them pay their bills, if you're going to be receiving any sort of bequest from your parents. But you might want or need to reach out to some sort of third party. It could be a legal professional. It could be a trusted contact, another family member, a friend, a clergy member. It could be a financial planner or someone that they work with. Maybe it's even your spouse or your partner you know, essentially your, your parents' son-in-law, your parents' daughter-in-law, instead of you yourself. Just someone to broach the conversation with your parents, explain to your parents why the conversation is important, and then explain to your parents why it's important to loop you, their children, into that conversation. It can be hard for you to do that all yourself. You know, hey mom, hey dad, here's why it's important you talk to me about this. It can be easier sometimes for a third party to say, hey, Jim, hey, Nancy, here's why this conversation is important, and here's why you should be talking to your kids about it. So there's another way, another idea to get reluctant parents involved in this conversation. Okay, but what do we actually talk about? Let's talk about the various nitty-gritty financial topics, the information that we hope to gather from our parents as part of these challenging conversations, You know, the whole point is to gather as many details as possible, as many details as your parents are willing to give you about their financial and their health situation and and answer those kind of what if scenarios. You don't necessarily have to do it all at once. It could happen over, over many conversations. But maybe your parents are reluctant. Here's at least some of the basic information that you should try to gather up front or in those initial conversations. First, you need to understand what your parents estate planning is like and specifically what kind of estate planning documents they have. Do they have a will? Do they have a living trust? Do they have a power of attorney? Do they have an advanced healthcare directive, sometimes called a healthcare proxy? These documents are are all particularly important. Now, the living trust isn't necessarily a must have, but a will, if you're not familiar, a will details how your parents plan on leaving their assets to beneficiaries after death power of attorney a power of attorney gives someone essentially the ability to make decisions especially financial decisions on behalf of your parents if they end up in some sort of disabled state where they are they're unable to make those decisions by themselves you know usually it has to do with some sort of cognitive decline maybe it's a a sudden traumatic injury that leaves them in a state where they can't make decisions for themselves, or maybe it's a, a slow decline, like a, a dementia or an Alzheimer's type decline, where your parents need someone to step in and make important decisions for them. That's what a power of attorney does. The advanced healthcare directive or the healthcare proxy is similar to a power of attorney, except it applies to healthcare decisions instead of financial decisions. There might be, you know, an, an unfortunate scenario where let's say your, your parent is uh, unfortunately they're dying. And the question is, do we keep your parent on life support or do we keep your parent kind of you know sedated on, on morphine or something like that? It's a really, really hard decision. And it's a hard decision, especially for a child, for a loving child to have to make in the moment. Here you are just essentially grieving already, stressed about your, your parent's health. And you're being asked, should you take your parent off Life support—that is a very, very hard decision. What a healthcare proxy does, or what an advanced healthcare directive does, is it might lay out your parents' wishes from a time when they were sound of mind and sound of body. And you know, some people say, "I don't really want to stay on life support for months and months and months. Pull the plug. Just just put me out of my misery, please." It's very understandable when when you kind of talk about it with a smile and when you're healthy and sober and, and looking at it through that lens and. Probably some of you out there are saying like, yeah, that's what I'd want. Just pull the plug. Others of you might say the opposite. And you're sitting there going like, no, if if there's a chance I come out of it and recover, like keep me alive. I want to be alive. Or at the very least, yeah, I, I want you to make decisions on my behalf. And if you can make the decisions in this kind of manner, that's what a healthcare proxy or advanced healthcare directive does. And when they're not involved, you're putting a lot of pressure on that next of kin to make really challenging decisions about your health. So, when you're talking to your parents, a will, a power of attorney, a healthcare proxy, it's important to explain to them why these documents are important and what can happen if these documents aren't in place. If something were to happen to your parents and they didn't have these documents, you or your siblings would likely have to go to court and hope that you could be appointed as your parents' conservator or guardian or something like that to make those kind of financial or healthcare decisions. First off, that takes time second off it's it's not guaranteed to happen in your favor you're relying on a judge on the court to make a decision that that you of course think is best but now you're you're relying on someone else's opinion someone who's not involved in your family it's important that you draft these ahead of time in case something were to happen Okay, what else can you talk to your parents about? Another big one is how do your parents pay their bills? That's a great thing to know in case an emergency arises and you need to step in. Are bills being paid automatically? Do your parents write checks every month? In what amount? Where do they send them to? All those kind of things. It's probably annoying to gather all that information, but it is important. Where are the checks coming from, right? Are your parents pulling money out of their retirement accounts, out of a taxable brokerage account? Are they simply living off of what's in their bank account plus some social security checks? The more info your parents are willing to share here, the better. And uh, speaking of assets, speaking of retirement accounts, it's important for you to know what kind of asset base your parents have. And this is where the conversation can get a little bit murky. It's not always easy because you definitely don't want to come off as the child who's saying like, all right, mom and dad, what's my uh, inheritance going to be? You know, what, what, what are your 401k balances? What's your retirement account like? Uh, how, how, how much money am I getting? You, you don't want to come off that way. But th- there is a very logical and, and rational argument to be made for, for the sake of financial planning to understand how much money you might be receiving and when. I don't, it's unfair is the wrong word, but essentially it's, it's inefficient to plan your life one way and then all of a sudden you realize like, oh, I just got a $500,000 gift I wasn't expecting. Hmm, maybe I wouldn't have eaten so much ramen noodles for the past few years if I had known that money was coming. So it's not a conversation so much so that you can start planning what kind of yacht you're going to buy, but it's more that kind of conversation where it's if you're going to be receiving money, roughly how much might it be, and should that start affecting the way that you live your life right now? Can you start to afford to live life a little bit differently? Can you afford a little bit more right now because you're going to be getting some sort of inheritance later or vice versa? Maybe you've been expecting an inheritance in the back of your mind and therefore you haven't been saving that much. But after a conversation with your parents, your parents say like, yeah, yeah, we're going to leave you a little bit. But just so you know, we're going to leave a lot to charity. We think that you should earn your own stripes. That might come out of this conversation too, and that would drastically alter your personal financial plan. So again, as long as you pose this question in the right frame, you're not asking so that you can understand what sort of Lamborghini you're going to buy. You're not asking so that you can you know, cross your fingers, hope they die sooner so that you can get your money, right? You're, you're asking for the sake of your own financial planning because a large windfall or the lack of a large windfall might make a, a really big change, might, might cause a, a really big effect in your finances today. Another thing you can talk about during your money talks is uh, whether your parents have any sort of plan for long-term care. You know, Medicare does not cover the cost of long-term care, meaning like nursing home care, and the median annual cost can range from anywhere from $20,000 to 100000 plus. for for a room in a nursing home. I mean, I I know from firsthand experience through work that some people are paying in the range of $20,000 per month, per month for some sort of adult care service. And and now granted that can be planned around. Medicaid planning, not Medicare planning, but Medicaid planning is a, a big industry in especially amongst estate planning attorneys where you can, Move assets around in a certain way usually involves forming a trust such that an older adult qualifies for Medicaid and thus can pay for a lot of their long-term care with Medicaid. Long-term care insurance is another thing that we've talked about here on the Best Interest Podcast before, where some people use it successfully. I've also heard horror stories of long-term care insurance not working at all as expected. But that's kind of not today's point. The point of today's podcast is simply to ask your parents if they have a long-term care plan. Not everybody does. Not everybody needs one. I, I can tell you personally that I don't really like the idea of living in a nursing home. I know I'm saying that at age 33. Maybe my mind will change. But I really want to maintain my independence as long as possible. And moving into a nursing home is not something that I'm exactly planning on doing. But it is something that at least I'm going to be thinking about. It's something that I should be thinking about, that we all should be thinking about is what is that plan? If it's not going into a nursing home, fine, but what does it look like? What are the safety nets involved if you're 80 years old and still living at home and you trip and twist your ankle and you can't get up? You know, <laughs> you, you should think about that. I mean, that is a long term care question. You know, help me, I've fallen, I can't get up. Get one of those buzzers, call 911. That's something that you can talk about with your parents and make sure that they're set up for success in that way. Changing gears a, a tiny bit here, staying on the main subject, but just changing gears a tiny bit. A cool story that I came across here at work. One of our clients wrote a really interesting letter. This, this client is probably in their late 70s, early 80s. And they wrote this letter to their children and to their grandchildren. And it's probably a four or five page letter. And it was really well written, which I'm sure helps. But in essence, the the letter to the children and the grandchildren said, here's how we've made our money. Here's how we struggled at times during our life. Here are some of the powerful lessons that we learned. And here are the choices we're making in distributing this money, some to charity, a lot to you, our children, our grandchildren. But here's really what these assets mean to us, how important they are to us. And ultimately, it's up to you how you want to spend them. But here are some of our thoughts. Here are some of our hopes. Here are some of our dreams. And, and, and in a, in a couple cases, here are some rules that we'd like to put in place. You know, some of the rules being, for example, to the grandkids, you know, of this gift is set aside for your college expenses. You don't have to go to college, but if you choose not to, that $200,000 is going to go to a charity instead, which I think, you know, seems like a reasonable rule. I I want to help pay for your college, but if you're not going to college, I'm not going to give you this money. Okay. It seems like a reasonable rule. But I just thought that that letter was communicated. it It was such clean communication and it was so clear that it set this really clear expectation between the grandparents and the the parents and the grandchildren about, again, where the money came from, how much it meant and, and how hard they worked throughout their life to gather that money and to grow that money, to invest that money. And then ultimately, money isn't an end, right? We've talked about here on the podcast before that ultimately money is just a means to an end. And ultimately for this couple, how they hoped that their heirs, how they hoped that their loved ones would use the money for, for positive things in their lives and that they hope the loved ones would actually, would actually use the money and not just sit on the money forever. Kind of like the grandparents actually did sit on the money, but okay, I'm rambling a little bit because, because the real upshot here is clear communication. It's important for you listening to this podcast right now, assuming that you're on the younger side to try to start these conversations with your parents. But if you're on the older side, or eventually when you get to the older side, it's important for you to have these conversations with your children, with your grandchildren. It's important to explain to them how you're feeling about the money, what your plans for the money are. It's very easy and very common to, say, split assets evenly amongst your children. But in some cases, that might not make sense. Or in some cases, that might not feel right to you for one reason or another. That's a really hard conversation to have. But it's important that you have that conversation early, if possible. You know, it's important that you have that conversation when while you're alive. Because the fact of the matter is, sometimes that conversation doesn't come about until after you've passed away. When an attorney is administering your estate, and the attorney is the one breaking the news to your loved ones that the assets are going to be broken up in a certain way. And that's not very fun for your loved ones to hear that in that way. And in fact, it can lead to some some permanently bitter feelings. I was recently reading what essentially is is a Dear Abby column. I think it's on MarketWatch. But they have a a column where where folks can write in to an editor or a personal finance expert and say, here's my situation. What do you think? And one of the situations was from an adult child of a grandparent, but you know, a a 45-year-old is writing in saying, my father just passed away. And he left significantly more money to me than to my sister for various reasons. You know, the sister was involved in some criminal crimes in her past and, and whatever. The, the grandfather was worried about the way that the money would be left to her. But long story short, of course, the, the sister felt great resentment towards her brother who's writing this letter because the brother is the one who received the majority of the assets. Now, we can all listen to the story and say like, well, it's not really the brother's fault. He just got left assets. He didn't do anything special. He didn't cheat. He didn't, he didn't forge the document of, of the will and, and get himself more assets. He was just the favored son of, of the father. But, but the way the, the article is written or the way the letter is written, it makes you realize that there are some conversations that should have happened during life. There are some conversations that should have happened while the patriarch was alive And those conversations did not happen. And so the son and the daughter, they found out about the estate plan after their father had passed away. And by that time, it's too late to change anything. You you can't edit the will after the person has died. And I suppose the son could just decide to give money to his sister to make it 50-50. But then he's directly going against his father's wishes. And that doesn't feel good either. Many people out there would say, well, I I can't do it. I can't do it in good conscience because dad left this money in a very specific way and I don't want to go against his wishes. So now not only do you have finances involved, which are hard enough, finances are hard enough. You have family relationships involved. And that is a very sticky subject. So the more communication you can have, the better. I'm going to say it one more time before wrapping up the episode. Obviously, if you're younger, which many of you listening to this are, this is the kind of topic that you want to bring up to your parents slowly but surely, probably over a number of months or years, just so that you can gather information, understand where they are in their life, and how you might need to step in in the future should certain things happen to them, many of which will happen to them simply because time is coming for us all if you're older and listening to this, it's never too early to start bringing up some of these ideas with your kids. Maybe you're only 55 and you've got three or four kids and they're in their teens and twenties or early thirties. It's not too early to start bringing up these conversations with them just to say, Hey guys, in case I get hit by a bus, here's what I'm thinking. They'll appreciate it. You'll appreciate it. You'll all get on the same page At the end of the day, communication is a really big part of personal finance. It's a big part of all relationships, as we know. And this kind of mixture of finance and family is a place where communication is paramount. And let's end today's episode because we've been dealing with our aging parents. We've been talking a little bit about estate planning or planning for the end of life. And I think on that note, it might be a good time to talk about the top five regrets of the dying. Now, this is a blog post that I recently wrote on The Best Interest. And in fact, it's a list that I didn't necessarily come up with, but I wanted to share with you guys listening, with my readers who read on the blog. Australian nurse Bronnie Ware, B-R-O-N-N-I-E, Bronnie, kind of like LeBron. Bronnie Ware worked in palliative care, that is, easing the pain of the dying, for many years. And over her time, spending time with dying patients, hearing the things that they regretted about their life, Ware formulated this list, the top five regrets of the dying. And her list has traveled far and wide over the internet for quite good reason, in my opinion. Now, when I read this list, I thought to myself that it's got these direct applicability to personal finance because personal finance is ultimately about allocating the limited resources in our lives. And no resource is quite so limited or us quite so important as our time. Our time is the ultimate limited resource. And Bronnie Ware's List serves as an important reminder of that. So let's dive right in. Number one, the number one top regret of the dying. I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. When I see this, I think of peer pressure. Peer pressure is a hell of a drug. We've all succumbed to it. We're all guilty at some point in our life of making choices based on what our friends, our family, other people in life might think of us. Now, I've found at least, and maybe you have too, that when we meet someone with the irreverence to not succumb to that type of peer pressure, they're a complete breath of fresh air. They are living life on their own terms, and we see something in that that we find extremely admirable. And I think that's because it alludes back to what this regret is that we often regret not being able to live life true to ourselves. We regret living a life according to the way that others expect us to. Of course, it's hard. It's hard. It's a challenge to live that life that you want to live without caring about how you might be perceived. Our social monkey brains aren't really wired for that kind of decision-making. We don't want to be seen as an outcast. We don't want to be seen as strange or different, necessarily. We want to fit into the tribe. However, according to Bronnie Ware... Caring too much about others' perception, at least so much so that it really affects the way that you live your life, that it pushes you to live a life according to others' expectations, that is a regrettable choice. And that's, that's something you're going to regret at the end of life. Number two, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. There's a terrific personal finance lesson here, guys. Money is a means, not an end. Because yes, we need money to pursue our passions and to support our loved ones. And that money is obtained, typically at least, through some form of hard work. But we have one limited resource in life, time, to either spend with our loved ones or spend on our passions or to spend doing the work which will fund those passions. So we have limited time. We have many important options, ways to spend that time. And we have to find to strike a balance between working hard to get money and then Finding time, using time to potentially spend the money or at the very least spend that time with the loved ones or the passions, the things that give life meaning in the first place. It's regrettable, according to the people that Ronnie Ware saw die before her, it's regrettable to spend too much time working, too much time obtaining money and not enough time spending that money or or just spending the time with the things we care about the most. Number three. I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. Now, I'm no psychologist, but the internet tells me that it's challenging, yet very important, to express our feelings to the people in our lives. However, we frequently hesitate to express those feelings because, well, one, it's hard to be vulnerable. Expressing our feelings, it makes us vulnerable. We're, we're sharing our, our deepest thoughts, our insecurities. What if she doesn't love me back? You know what I mean? I, I can relate to that one pretty well. So anyway, it's hard to be vulnerable. Number two, we want to avoid conflict. A lot of times if we're expressing our deep, dark feelings, we might be saying, hey, it, it really bothers me when you do this, or it makes me angry, or I don't like this, or I want you to change, or I want myself to change. And those can be sources of conflict, and we generally want to avoid conflict. Okay, that one makes sense. Uh, the third reason, we, we don't want to be a downer. I get it. Again, expressing our feelings, especially you know these deep, dark feelings that we might keep bottled up inside, they are oftentimes some form of a, a negative feeling. It's, it's a sadness. It's a frustration. Or maybe we want to express something like love, but then we're, we're worried about getting our heart broken. Okay, we don't want to be a downer. We don't want to bring that into the world. We bottle it up instead. I suppose beyond that, there could be any number of potential reasons why we're not sharing or expressing the feelings that we have in our head. But according to some expert sources that I've read, humans are unable to read one another's minds. And the only way to let your feelings be known is to express them out into the world. Now, I wish I had more to say on this, more expertise to share, but I don't. And and one reason why is, yeah, I I struggle with expressing my feelings at times. Absolutely. It's something I wish I could be better at. I wish I could just snap my fingers and share more. But it's motivating for me to see this and to see that one of the top five regrets of the dying is that they wish they'd had more courage to share their feelings. Because this might... Give me at least the impetus to find that courage or find my voice in some way and start doing that more in in productive ways, sharing my feelings. All right, we can move on to number four. I wish I had stayed in touch with my friends. So I originally wrote this article sitting in a rental house in Phoenix, Arizona on the Sunday afternoon after a good friend's bachelor party. And the party was attended by lots of mutual friends some of whom I'd never met before, some of whom I hadn't seen since college graduation over 10 years ago. And we had an absolute blast. It was awesome to reconnect with old friends, remind myself that the people in our lives are paramount. It made me think of Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett says, when you get to my age, you'll really measure your success in life by how many of the people you want to have love you actually do love you. Now, okay, this is a bachelor party. It's not like we're all in love with each other. But it was, it was a great reminder of, you know, the people in life, you want to be respected. You want to have friends. You want to be able to build connections in your life. That really is the spice and the zest of life. That's the pith. That's why we're all here in the first place. It's all too easy to lose touch with one another, to lose touch with family, lose touch with friends, to lose touch with people who at one point in life meant something to you. And you can't be best friends with everyone in the world. That's probably a, a hollow task something, uh, it's, it's a hollow pursuit in the first place. You wouldn't really want to be friends with everyone in the world. But a life without strong relationships is regrettable. And I can completely see how losing touch with close friends, especially when you get towards the end of life, becomes a major, major regret. Last, the number five regret of the dying, I wish I had let myself be happier. Life will deal you lemons, hard times, bad luck, it's not really a matter of if those lemons get dealt to you, but but when. And choosing to, quote unquote, make lemonade, or at least try, that, in my life, I found that really is a choice. And thus, happiness is largely a choice. It doesn't mean that we have to be happy about sad things. We're not celebrating terminal illness over here, anything like that. Like, sad things will happen, and those things will make you sad. No doubt about it. But I think it's important to at least make an effort to make the best out of certain situations, and when death comes knocking, to look back on a life full of, hopefully, hopefully full of silver linings. Not only good things, but even some of the bad things had silver linings. It makes me think of one of my favorite, probably my top favorite YouTube video, or sp- because it's a speech. It's a, it's a great speech to read. It's also, a, it's probably a better speech just to listen to. It's David Foster Wallace's This Is Water. And rather than tell you about it, I think what we'll do right now is pull a little clip from it And play that because I think it's important to focus on finding happiness in simple, boring, day-to-day life. Take it away, David Foster Wallace.
2: By way of example, let's say it's an average adult day and you get up in the morning, go to your challenging white-collar college graduate job, and you work hard for eight or ten hours. And at the end of the day, you're tired and somewhat stressed. And all you want is to go home and have a good supper and maybe unwind for an hour and then hit the sack early because, of course, you have to get up the next day and do it all again but then you remember there's no food at home. You haven't had time to shop this week because of your challenging job. And so now after work, you have to get in your car and drive to the supermarket. It's the end of a work day and the traffic is apt to be very bad. So getting to the store takes way longer than it should. And when you finally get there, the supermarket is very crowded because of course it's the time of day when all the other people with jobs also try to squeeze in some grocery shopping. And the store is hideously, fluorescently lit and infused with soul-killing Muzak or corporate pop. And it's pretty much the last place you want to be. But you can't just get in and quickly out. You have to wander all over the huge, overlit stores, confusing aisles to find the stuff you want. And you have to maneuver your junkie cart through all these other tired, hurried people with cart, et cetera, et cetera, cutting stuff out because it's a long ceremony. And eventually, (laughs) you get all your supper supplies except now it turns out there aren't enough checkout lanes open, even though it's the end-of-the-day rush. So the checkout line is incredibly long, which is stupid and infuriating. But you can't take your frustration out on the frantic lady working the register who is overworked at a job whose daily tedium and meaninglessness surpasses the imagination of any of us here at a prestigious college. But anyway, you finally get to the checkout line's front, and you pay for your food and get told to have a nice day in a voice that is the absolute voice of death. <laughs> and then you have to take your creepy, flimsy plastic bags of groceries in your cart with the one crazy wheel that pulls madly to the left, all the way out through the crowded, bumpy, littery parking lot, and then you have to drive all the way home through slow, heavy, SUV-intensive rush-hour traffic, et cetera, et cetera. Everyone here has done this, of course, but it hasn't yet been part of you graduates' actual life routine, day after week, after month, after year. But it will be. (laughs) And many more dreary, annoying, seemingly meaningless routines besides. But that is not the point. The point is that petty, frustrating crap like this is exactly where the work of choosing is going to come in. Because the traffic jams and crowded aisles and long checkout lines give me time to think. And if I don't make a conscious decision about how to think and what to pay attention to, I'm gonna be pissed and miserable every time I have to shop, because my natural default setting is the certainty that situations like this are really all about me, about my hungriness and my fatigue and my desire to just get home. And it's gonna seem for all the world, like everybody else is just in my way. And who are all these people in my way? And look at how repulsive most of them are and how stupid and cow-like and dead-eyed and non-human they seem in the checkout line or at how annoying and rude it is that people are talking loudly on cell phones in the middle of the line, and look at how deeply, personally unfair this is. (laughs) Or, of course, if I'm in a more socially conscious, liberal arts form of my default setting, I can spend time in the the end-of-the-day traffic being disgusted about all the huge, stupid, lane-blocking SUVs and Hummers and B-12 pickup trucks burning their wasteful, selfish 40-gallon tanks of gas, And I can dwell on the fact that the patriotic or religious bumper stickers always seem to be on the biggest, most disgustingly selfish vehicles, driven by the ugliest… See, this is an example of how not to think. Biggest, most disgustingly selfish vehicles, driven by the ugliest, most inconsiderate and aggressive drivers. And I can think about how our children's children will despise us for wasting all the future's fuel and probably screwing up the climate and how spoiled and stupid and selfish and disgusting we all are, and how modern consumer society just sucks, and so on and so forth. You get the idea. If I choose to think this way in the store and on the freeway, fine. Lots of us do, except thinking this way tends to be so easy and automatic that it doesn't have to be a choice. It is my natural default setting. It's the automatic way that I experience the boring, frustrating, crowded parts of adult life when I'm operating on the automatic unconscious belief that I am the center of the world and that my immediate needs and feelings are what should determine the world's priorities. The thing is that, of course, there are totally different ways to think about these kinds of situations. In this traffic, all these vehicles stuck and idling in my way, it's not impossible that some of these people in SUVs have been in horrible auto accidents in the past and now find driving so terrifying that their therapist has all but ordered them to get a huge, heavy SUV so they can feel safe enough to drive. Or that the Hummer that just cut me off is maybe being driven by a father whose little child is hurt or sick in the seat next to him, and he's trying to get this kid to the hospital, and he's in a way bigger, more legitimate hurry than I am. It is actually I who am in his way. Or I can choose to force myself to consider the likelihood that everyone else in the supermarket's checkout line is just as bored and frustrated as I am and that some of these people probably have much harder, more tedious or painful lives than I did. Again, please don't think I'm giving you moral advice or that I'm saying you're supposed to think this way or that anyone expects you to just automatically do it because it's hard. It takes will and effort. And if you are like me, some days you won't be able to do it or you just flat out won't want to.
0: Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Best Interest Podcast. If you have a question for Jesse to answer on a future episode, send him an email at jesse at bestinterest.blog. Again, that's jesse at bestinterest.blog. Did you enjoy the show? Subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever you listen. This helps others find the show and invest in knowledge themselves. And we really appreciate it. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Best Interest Podcast. The Best Interest Podcast is a personal podcast meant for education and entertainment. It should not be taken as financial advice and is not prescriptive of your financial situation.